and welcome to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the show where we discuss all things film, obscurities and classics, from martial arts to Bruce exploitation films, from Drunken Master to Re-Enter the Dragon. My name is Michael Brooks, I'm here with my co-hosts Bill King and Sam Oliver. Hello. Good day, mate. Hello, I'm still reeling from Re-Enter the Dragon, goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we are going to cover that, are we, to be fair? So I've just, uh... I'd rather not, I'd rather not. No. That's going to be episode 512, don't worry, we'll get there. <laughs> Scraping the bell. This week we are going to be discussing Nomadland, the Best Picture Oscar winner from Chloe Zhao, starring Frances McDormand. Before we get into that though, uh, we're going to talk about some news from the week that has just gone. Uh, I've got a piece of news for you both. So, which and this is a so this is a prevailing theme. We're seeing a lot of these uh, music biopics coming through the works at the moment. But which seventy-five-year-old female star has it has been announced uh, now the subject of a in the works biopic? Seventy-five years old. Oh, mm. yeah. My first thought. I'm not sure of her age, and if she's much younger than this, I apologise. Yes, tread, sh- tread carefully. <laughs> is it Taylor Swift? I'm joking. Um, is it <laughs> is it Cher? Bang on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, is it oh, win, yeah. As if Cher's 75. That's amazing. 75. Goodness Cher, me. if you're listening, you're looking great, love. Congrats. I'm sure she is listening. Cher, yeah, there's no official title as yet and no director is attached, but uh, Eric Roth, the screenwriter behind Forrest Gump and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, is working on the script. Um, and yeah, it's, it will chart Cher's six decades in music and movies. Ooh. Presumably, a large section of it will cover the behind-the-scenes drama and filming of Mamma Mia 2. Here we go again. <laughs> I think that's probably going to be so. the lion's share of the film, probably. That, that's what I want to mm. see, definitely. I imagine a, a large portion of the film will cover that period in the 90s when that song, Believe, was like number one for about five years. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> Long section. I mean, that's basically all, all I want is an hour and a half of Believe. <laughs> that's all I need for my shared film. The story of autotune. It was like the first first song to actually use autotune. Yeah, yeah she was uh, She she was a, was a <laughs> trailblazer on that one. I actually think shares... I, I'm going to... I think she's mm. a fantastic actress, though. I think she's been she's been a great performer. She's in she's in some wonderful films, particularly love her in Witches of Eastwick. Oh, um, fantastic! Yeah, like I think I think her facing off with Jack in that is is brilliant. What would be really good seeing is they're doing her whole life. If they cast it, remember they did that Bob Dylan film a while ago where they had loads of different people playing mm. Bob at different periods of his life. Yes. Do something like that, but with loads of different people playing all the aspects of Cher. Wouldn't that be great? That's a very good idea. Controversial is, Williams got a thought. She, she's 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 not Yeah, but but she's not really changed her look at all since like the plastic surgery. Like honestly she hasn't really had many different looks, has she? Because she's just got that face now. <laughs> I know, but yeah, for, for, I'm just saying for, for a while she's not really had many different looks or expressions. But that's why I think different actors can capture different facets of her never changing look. So they can capture what I'd like to refer to as the internal actor's journey, William. So that's the pitch I'm making to Eric Roth right now. So I think it's probably best we move on. Um, <laughs> which uh, So second piece of news. Uh, which iconic piece of film clothing is expected to sell up to for up to a quarter of a million dollars when it goes up for auction next month? Quarter of a mil. I think it's got to be like mm-hmm. a working Iron Man suit or something because that's the only thing that's worth it. Like an actual Iron Man with everything working on it, or the jetpack in Russia from Love. 
is it something i feel like i'm going to go the opposite direction and it's going to be something like um han solo's tiny little black waistcoat he wears in like the first star wars film you're very close oh wouldn't that be great if I was just spot on first time? Right actor, wrong franchise. Oh, is it Indy's whip? Is it the hat? Is it his hat? Mm-hmm. Is it his oh. hat? Yeah, it's uh, Harrison Ford's Federer from oh, Indiana please. Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, yes, please. Uh, yeah, it's um, up for auction. It's yeah expected to sell for up to a quarter of a million dollars. It's like the star item. Uh, but it's one of over 1,600 rare items from TV and film which go under the hammer in prop stores, entertainment memorabilia live auction next month. Other star slots include Harry Potter's wand made for Deathly Hallows part one, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker's dueling lightsabers from Revenge of the Sith. They're expected to go for in the region of 30 to 50 K. Carrie Fisher's annotated draft script for the Empire Strikes Back, which is same 30 to 50 K. And surprisingly more expensive, this is estimated at 40 to $60,000, the reverse bear trap contraption from Saw. (laughs) Just to buy that. Does it work? <laughs> I really hope that, like, when it is when it is bought, it's somebody like really suspect. Yeah. Like somebody's like, "Yes, hello, I would like this for totally normal reasons, nothing strange at all." And everyone's like, "Well, if he's got the money, he's got the money. Have this reverse bear trap, yeah. fucking hell." It's a free market. Let him <laughs> let him buy what he wants. <laughs> Sold to the fidgety man. <laughs> to the man sweating on the back row with the stained T-shirt. It's yours. <laughs> In the little tricycle. Wow. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, yeah, so as I say, do a little Google search if you want to get your, you can uh, put in your bids early, I believe, on that, uh, if you've got some spare cash that you've saved up during uh, during lockdown. And we'll, um, we'll be dropping our bank details at the end of the episode so you can donate money for us and we'll put the bids in for you if you'd rather. So Yes, we'll do that. We could buy the Federer and then sort of take it in turns each week to wear it. Yeah, That'd and then ah, yeah, and the audience, the, our listeners have to guess who's li- who's wearing it that week based on how clever their insight is you know yes crucial audience interaction speaking of audience interaction i've segued myself perfectly into we're we're out there on all the various social media platforms all the all the nice ones twitter instagram facebook i think we're creaky chair pod across all of them so if you do want to interact with us please do we're lovely thanks that's my plug over excellent Well, actually, funny you said that. Um, I've received a letter today. Um, so this is from the mailbox, oh, our mailbox. Yeah, we got a letter from... I forgot um, about the PO box we had. Offshore. Yeah, we've got a PO, a PO box. Brimming. Um, offshore, yeah, delivered by our, our postman named Patrick. Um, but yeah, this is a letter from John, from uh, John Town. Hello, guys. Really like the podcast. Please, can you do a review of Fast and Furious 9 in a future episode? Thank you. Do it. John. Wow. He's... So that's that's from John there. That's wow. John from the mailbox. Wow. What do, what do we think, guys? We could we could think about that, can't we, John? When is this out? When is this due to unveil its mastery upon the unsuspecting public? He's he's not said. He's not said. Um, but I pre- yeah, it's this summer, June. I'm, I'm away this summer, unfortunately. Oh uh, yeah, you've, you've got that big... summer. I've um I'm actually doing Lent a bit late this year, and I'm taking the thing I'm giving up for is um Fast and the Furious films. I feel like I've OD'd on them a little bit, so. Might be best to avoid, really. Real, mm. real nice interaction with fans, there, guys. Also, well I've I've not seen Fast and the Furious one through eight, so I worry that I literally wouldn't be able to understand the intricacies of the plot that I assume will be happening in Fast and the Furious nine. Yes, like who's that? Well, if we do it, if we do it in eight weeks' time, your film each week you could choose a Fast and Furious. So, <laughs> well, let's skip ahead Fine. to the end because the film I've been watching this week is Fast and the Furious one through eight. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm sure we could find some way of incorporating it into a special episode at some point near the time. If it's what we've got to plead, we, you know, if the fans want it, um, who are we to deny them? And if John's gone to the effort to write us a letter, I'd really like to, you know, we'll write him a letter back. Don't worry, John, we've, we've got you. Excellent. Okay, so uh, this week we are going to be discussing uh, the drama film Nomadland from director Chloe Zhao. Zhao is the first non-white woman to win the Best Director Oscar earlier this year. Only the second woman uh, to win the win the award at all. And of course, uh, Nomadland won, took home the big prize, Best Picture. And Frances McDormand won Best Actress. Uh, she's now the second highest actress uh, score. She's only behind Catherine Hepburn, who has won the award four times. The film is based on the 2017 book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder. The film is written, edited, produced and directed by Chloe Zhao. Uh, Her previous films include, uh, well, they are, not include, uh, Songs My Brothers Taught Me and The Rider, neither of which I have seen. I don't know whether you have. Haven't, unfortunately. No. Uh, So Nomadland, it tells the story of Fern, uh, played by Frances McDormand who has become a uh, nomad. She travels around living in her van. Uh, This is after her husband has died, and the town in which they had lived and worked together at the US gypsum plant in Empire, Nevada, shuts down. Uh, So essentially the film follows Fern as she joins this transient labour force that takes up temporary and seasonal jobs and then moves on elsewhere. Uh, So she works in in one of uh, Amazon's colossal fulfillment centres over a winter. Uh, she works as a camp host as a, at a campsite. Um, for a time, she joins a uh, desert rendezvous in Arizona, organised by Bob Wells, uh, playing himself. It's, this is a sort of support system and community for fellow RV travellers and nomads, where they learn basic survival and self-sufficiency skills for life on the road. So it's a film about Fern's sense of resilience and her coming to terms with her change in circumstances and her her lot in life and the many different people and friends she encounters along the way, many of whom are real-life nomads playing fictionalised versions of, of themselves, like uh, like Bob Wells. So, Sam, do you want to go first this week? Let us know, what did you think about Nomadland? Well, first, I'm just going to put my stall out straight away and say I absolutely loved Nomadland. As with a lot of um, any film that comes along that has such a big kind of like hype behind it, especially around award awards season, thinking of like Parasite last year being a very good example. Um, there's always that element of kind of worry going into these sort of films. Um, and I had a lot of anticipation for Nomadland. And I was really pleased that for me personally, it delivered on nearly every level I could want it to deliver on. I just think it was one of the, it's a really experiential film. Like I found myself just getting absolutely, almost without even realizing it, getting so absorbed into all of what was happening. I think because it is almost almost kind of like documentary in the way that a lot of it's filmed, obviously, as you mentioned, there's a lot of people in the film who are just playing fictionalized versions of themselves. And they bring this real reality and this real like lived in experience to the film that I think you wouldn't get with actors portraying those roles. It speaks volumes about the performance of Francis McDormand that at certain points, you kind of forget that Francis McDormand is four-time Oscar award-winning Francis McDormand from countless films. She inhabits... Three times. Sorry. Three-time award-winning Francis McDormand. You kind of forget that that's who you're watching here. You feel like you are seeing Fern and you because of the experience that she's... The way it's shot and the way that she interacts with these people feels so human. And it feels so like real. I just found myself getting absolutely 100% absorbed in it. 
I think it really does a great job of showing what this what that life must be like because it's something that I've not really had any kind of understanding or experience of and I think straight away it throws you right in to kind of what that existence of living in that RV living that nomadic lifestyle is like and without kind of being too heavy-handed about it I came away feeling like I'd experienced that I felt like I'd really been with her on her journey I think the film does a really great job of having tackling those sort of really intense human moments the one moment that really sticks out to me and I know that this is necessarily a spoiler but obviously if you want to go into the film totally blind then skip ahead but the one bit that really I can't stop thinking about is the bit when Frances McDormand is playing the recorder in her van and then all of a sudden the call of nature hits her and she has what sounds like a very very difficult poo and I'm like, oh, this is really funny. We've all been there. We've all had a really awful poo. That's such a funny thing that we're seeing. Three-time Academy Award winning Frances McDormand have a difficult poo. And then in the next scene, she's talking to a fellow nomad. And the nomad is talking about the experience of life and all the beautiful things that she's seen as she's been going around. And like it, the things she's going to take with her and the things that made a big impact on her life. And I found myself crying. And I think... The power of Nomadland for me rests in those two moments where in one moment I'm laughing and having a like, oh, a difficult poo. Isn't that funny? And in the very next scene, I was overcome with emotion and just couldn't stop myself from crying. I think the film rests on that idea of humanity and that idea of these being human people with human experiences. And despite the fact that it's obviously a film, I just found myself so completely immersed in it that... I felt like I was in that world. It did a really, really great job. And that's before I even go into talking about how good it looks as well. Like the cinematography in this film is outstanding. Some of the some of the long shots of just the RV driving away into the distance with these beautiful vistas in the background. You could just watch that for 20 minutes. It's so beautiful. I unashamedly absolutely loved Nomadland. I think... It's, I'm really excited to, I really am keen to watch Chloe Zhao's other films. Like if this is, I think it's really great that she's had this sort of great breakout before, breakout directorial. I think she wrote and produced as well. So she's a real triple threat here. So I'm looking forward to kind of investigating more of her work and seeing what she does next. Because yeah, I just really, really had a great time with Nomadland. And I think it's very rare that you see a film that gets so hyped that you're like, yeah, I completely feel like it justifies all of that. Yeah. Nothing but love from me. Firm praise, warm words indeed from from Sam. So I had a couple of days off work this week and took a day trip to Worthing. Had a day by the seaside uh, and also visited the delightful Dome Cinema. Uh, shout out to the Dome Cinema, one of the UK's oldest cinemas. It was uh, an absolute thrill being back in a cinema to see this film. Stunning uh, to watch it on the big screen, like you say, Sam. So the cinematography is really quite epic. Being a film about the open road and the American wilderness, it's well served on the on a large screen, so if you can go and see this film in a cinema, uh, you'd be well advised to do so. I, so I went with uh, so I went with my my brother who was visiting, um, and he said at the end that he he felt himself feeling often quite misty eyed at times during the film, uh, not because of the film's emotional power as I thought, but because uh, of having to wear a mask all the way through, uh, which you do have to do in a in a cinema. So uh, <laughs> it's slightly odd experience sitting in a cinema wearing a mask, but uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I I, I found this to be. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said, Sam. A quietly powerful and very moving film. Very understated. It's quite minimalist, isn't it? If you go in expecting 
a traditional plot and a narrative arc, uh, you're likely to be dis- disappointed. It's much more a sort of portrait of a way of life, isn't it? It's rather like a, a docudrama in a, in, a, in a way. I saw that Zhao had said that she drew inspiration from the documentaries of Werner Herzog. And you can definitely tell in terms of that's the slow pacing and the, the kind of honesty of the portrayals, the feeling duty-bound to, to capture and document the, the mundane uh, and the sublime at the same time, like you, you you talked about, Sam, in a way that Herzog does. I found it. I thought it was really interesting in the way that it captures this way of life at this point in history. So post-2008 financial crash, lots of lives upended, lots of people lost their homes, lots of people struggling with insecure and, and temporary employment. It's not the it's not quite the indictment of corporate America that I expected, especially when, you know, early on in the film she gets the job at Fern gets the job at the at the Amazon the Amazon Center. And I mean, just as an aside, I mean I'm not quite sure how Chloe Zhao managed to get the permission to film it. I know Amazon are incredibly secretive aren't they in terms of any sort of filming uh, within any of their their facilities so good job for being able to actually um actually capture that so it's not an indictment of corporate america but it is a, a subtle and an emotive reminder that behind all of these failed companies and redundant industries that you hear about in the news are real people who in some cases you know had their whole way of life and their community built around that work and that sense of that that place so it's very poignant in that sense i think it's also it was an interesting reflection on that very American sense of the open road and of being a wandering spirit. And, and I, I guess, it, I mean, we, I was talking about it with uh, my brother and, and afterwards about how, you know, could this, could a same film be made about, you know, these, this sort of community in this country. And it's a very different sort of, there are sort of travelers in, in this country, obviously, and people who, who move around from place to place, but it's, it doesn't really have that same sort of romanticism that is attached to it in, in America. And I mean, it's 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 raised in the film, isn't it, that Fern and others like her are, are in effect the new pioneers, um, and it does seem in this in a way like a kind of modern retelling of you know Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. But it's poignant from a generational point of view. I found that Fern and and most of the others that she encounters on the road, especially in Bob Wells's community, you know, they're older, they're in their sixties and their seventies. They're that from that age group that grew up in you know from the beat generation and that myth- mythologizing of the sort of transient road culture so you know most obviously jack kerouac's on the road films like easy rider you know what was once presented as countercultural and of like dropping out of society as being an act of rebellion and a repudiation of consumer capitalism now these people are like of retirement age aren't they but it's they're st- it's still being framed as like being outsiders of conventional society but it's less rebellion it's more necessity you know in a sense in a material sense because society has by and large nothing really for them it can't really offer them anything but in a spiritual sense as well because it's necessary for them being able to find peace with the world so i found it really interesting in that that sense and you do get the feeling I certainly did from the film that these are people who have made made their peace with themselves and with their lot in their life and with their place as outsiders. And you know, McDormand's stoic face that often dominates the screen, for, you know, it really captures that. You only get a real, you know, you only get a glimpse of the emotion building up inside her right at the end, don't you? And, and even then, the the scene cuts off abruptly. It's a sharp cut, and you don't get the audience. You don't get that emotional catharsis. If I have any criticism of the film, because I don't think I quite fell in love with it in the same way as you did, Sam, I think I found that in adopting the the Herzog-style 
tenor and the pacing i found it was it was often it was rolling along by and large in one gear so the same mood and the same tone all the way through which i think may be a problem for some people it will obviously work for a lot of people but i think it will put off some i think it could have benefited from maybe the odd injection of humor or the quickening of dramatic pace or maybe something unpleasant happening something dynamic just as i felt that at times you know even though i frequently had a lump in my throat because it was emotionally affecting I, sometimes it was slipping a little bit too much into being too sentimental too melancholic i found it a little bit the same sort of tone the same mood all the way through that said though i think you know it's an excellent piece of filmmaking i can't imagine myself re-watching it i think once is probably enough but uh, you know, as we said about Sound of Metal when we talked about it a couple of a couple of podcasts ago, it casts a very welcome spotlight over a particular community that's all too often, you know, marginalised and, and overlooked. So, yeah, uh, great achievement, I think. Bill, how about you? What did, what did you think about my Nomadland? Yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it as well. I thought it was excellent. I I thought it it was for me. It was sort of shot like a western or a post-apocalyptic road film. And, you know, the landscapes were sort of otherworldly, but also quite familiar. And it did, it felt like, yeah, this is a bit of a breakdown of society, but people are still pushing on across this, across this land. And I've really enjoyed that side of it. I found that quite surprising as well. Didn't, didn't really expect that. So yeah, credit, credit to Kozar for, um, for putting that across, because I've really enjoyed that, that sense of it. I thought the characters were excellent. These weird and wonderful lost souls, you know, they were loners, but they had this real sense of community. And it was it was great performances from, you know, real nomads. Um, I looked it up and, and Swanky, who is my favourite character, was a, is a real nomad herself. So incredible. She was able to put across this naturalistic performance. Um, I'm not sure how they achieved it, um, but, but did. And, you know, she's sharing a screen with Frances McDormand, who, you know, she's amazing. She's best actor out there and you've got swanky who's who's just been going around living in a van working these dead-end jobs you presume every every season and she's able to more than hold her own if not steal the scene so hell um swanky if you want to give up the nomad life which i suspect she doesn't she could become a major star now and lisa may as well the friend character is also a genuine this it's, it's very impressive in that i didn't know all the way through i don't know about you guys but i didn't didn't notice did not notice and you've got there david statham's there and he's playing a nomad he's a, obviously an excellent actor but yeah this cast was seamless so you couldn't I, I wasn't able to point out oh you're a nomad you're an actor you're a nomad you're an actor um which very impressive very impressive for the cast as a whole and the director um but yeah, I, th- I thought obviously Francis McDormand typically formidable and and so as you said stoic and and just so capable and driven and it just it got me thinking it's like she'd never do it but imagine her like headlining an action film I just think she'd be excellent or, you know some sort of hard sci-fi if she was like in a Sarah Connor or Ellen Ripley sort of role or John McClane you, you just think as a, a she'd be incredible because I, I do find I found her in this film especially a little bit scary as well at times like I was thinking would I approach her and talk to her and I think she especially in this you had that feeling of like she can absolutely hold her own like in this environment where you get the, well, I was at points being like, oh, this looks quite scary. This looks like quite an intimidating life. But you never got the sense that Francis McDormand slash Fern couldn't intimidate or very much kind of deal with whatever situation might come along. So yeah, 
I'm all on board for the hard sci-fi action film starring Francis. <laughs> and I thought that was maybe the Cohen brothers can do. Oh, yes, please get that set up. But I thought that was that was excellent of, of, of the cast as a whole again. In that you know these these people are older and and look frailer, but they've got such determination and, and strength to be able to put up and and even sort of choose this life in many ways. In that you know um, Fern's character especially was given many opportunities to to settle somewhere else without spoilers but in the end this this nomad life she'd found her place there she wanted to to move on and, and have a have a bit of a second chance in um in the, the her twilight years as she was approaching them um and I, so i thought that was very interesting um my criticisms i'm just saying this just for devil's advocacy really because i don't agree with it but it it, it did feel very typically oscary if you know what I mean, there was obviously um, the way it was shot and edited allowed for this this very slow meandering pace, um, which will pop people off, as as Mike said. But I don't think that is a um, negative in any way for my um, viewing experience, because as as Sam said, I really felt I I lived lived the film. Felt like after when I come back, I felt like. I, uh, sorry, I just said it when I came back. When I switched it off, I felt like afterwards I'd been travelling around with Fern and other nomads and been speaking to them about their lives. It's like I'd watched a six-part documentary or something or read read a long book about it, which, which is really impressive, again, for, for a film, um, which does have, you know, it does have a narrative. The, the, the other criticism I'd say, and this is possibly, you know, it's tied in with, praise for Frances McDormand's acting in that, as, as you both have said, she kept her emotions so um, underneath the, the skin, they weren't, they weren't readily apparent. It wasn't obvious that her character was going on much of a journey from the first scene to the last, if, um, if you catch my drift, and that you know, for, for all we know, she was already had made those decisions and she was just getting tested. But again, I'm, I'm really just saying that just for the interest of balance, um, because I, 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 I felt what she went through was was a was a growth, and I I felt I really got to know Fern's character and the reason why a lot of people choose this life and um, and enjoy this life a lot better after the end of the film. Yeah, and typically, as you said, looked fantastic. The, the wide shots just beautiful um, when they chose to film as well. I, it, it must have been very hard work because a lot of it seemed to me to be shot at um, either either um, magic hour, which is sort of the dusk twilight, or, or just before sunrise. Um, so yeah, kind of been a comfortable shoot for them, um, but well worth it because America is just incredible, the amount of different landscapes it has and, and weather and, and just natural beauty. And this, this showed it off. And like I say, it, it hailed back to me just like a classic John Ford Western. Um, so yeah, big, big old thumb in the air. I think um, just to jump on something that you said at the end there, Bill, I think all the characters that you see and you kind of feel like you've really seen their lives and you've lived that life with them. And at the end of the film, feeling like you've been on that journey with Francis McDormand and you've seen and talked to these characters. It reminds me of obviously one of the things that I had an issue with in Sound of Metal is that when that finished, I felt like I wanted to know more about these characters and I wanted to live a little bit more of their lives. But um, on the other side of that, Nomadland, I didn't have that feeling at all. I think Nomadland deals with its characters in those scenes so effectively and it lets you live with them for even just those briefest of moments. You feel like you've lived with them and you feel like you've got a really good sense. And obviously, I'd love to see more of them and I'd love to kind of spend a bit more time with them. But 
none of the characters I had that feeling that I was like, oh, I didn't feel like I got to know them well enough. I feel like in just these short, sharp, kind of stoic moments, you were able to get a real good sense of these people. And I think that's, you know, that's that's writing, that's directing, that's acting, that's everything. Uh, that's when, for me, that's when a film is at its height, when in a short amount of time, you can go, I understand this character and I'm totally with them. And I thought that was one of the beautiful things that Nomadland did really, really well. I think in so in her uh, acceptance, Oscar acceptance speech, Chloe Zhao said that uh, I've always found goodness in the people I met everywhere in the world, everywhere I went in the world, and I think that's that's reflected in the film's characters. And I don't know whether this is a, I don't think this is a criticism. I think this is more a reflection that I think is tied in with points that I raised about the feeling I had about the, the mood and the, and the tone of the film, but the fact that sort of every single fifth person that fern comes across in the film is like fundamentally decent which sadly isn't true it's alive <laughs> you know i i think could it have done with some of the like counterbalancing ever so slightly with characters who you know who weren't so positively drawn i wonder if like because obviously i get the feeling that this film's very much been made with the cooperation and kind of with the community of nomads that it that, that, that are in the film with them in mind i wonder if there is a certain element of like um, whether it's kind of Chloe Zhao's decision or uh, anyone else's decision, but to kind of show that community in the best possible light. And I think to kind of like really show these kind of like under underseen people, what their lives are like and what their hardships are like. And I wonder if there was a kind of deliberate decision there to be like, oh, if we throw in a character or two that are not very nice human beings, then that's kind of derailing what our purpose is a little bit more. I thought there was a few moments where you do get to see these other characters or like brief snippets of other people where you're like, Oh, that, that person might not necessarily be the, someone that I would necessarily get along with. The one scene that stuck out to me is there's a bit where Frances McDormand, I think it's when she's picking vegetables at night in this big kind of like warehousey place. And she's talking to a guy who's got a, um, a tattoo, the um, thing they have in Dukes of Hazard. What's that? the Confederate flag, where he's talking about his Confederate flag tattoo. And it's only a really quick, brief scene. But in that moment, you kind of see like, okay, there are people here that might not necessarily have the political opinions or other views that I would ascribe to. So there is those kind of brief glimpses of people. But I didn't really feel like I was yearning for a few more bad eggs. But I, I, I see what your point is. I think you know you, you say every every film or story it has to have an element of conflict, and I think that would have put the conflict onto a different um, theme, which was I think the theme of the conflict in in this film was really between Fern wanting to go into the nomad life and the the other exterior draws of going back to a normal life. Um, I think that was the central conflict for me was what she wanted to do, and then the obvious bonuses of, uh, of, of actually having a comfortable settled life um so I, I don't know I think I think characters that were more antagonistic being put in there I think that have made the, the choice maybe easier um and it might have made for a different film so yeah, yeah I take I take the point and I do I do think it will be an issue for for a lot of um viewers that how how slow paced it is and how how documentarian it is but but for me I, I don't think it, it required it I think it would have been a bit of a cheap trick, maybe. So it reminded me a lot of that Alexander Payne film about Schmidt. Uh, do you remember with uh, Jack Nicholson's last great performance, I think, wasn't it? You know, about the guy who, you know, similar sort of circumstances, his wife dies and he 
decides to take off around the country and he's in his big RV. Obviously, different film because it's a lot more sort of subtle comedy and humour, isn't there? But that would make a maybe a yeah <laughs> that would make a nice a nice double bill, maybe. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. You know what? I've not seen about Schmidt, and I do want to watch Nomadland again, so I think I might set that double bill up for myself. Yeah, there you go. Perfect, perfect double bill. Okay, well that was that was Nomadland. I think three fairly big creaky chair thumbs up all around there. Uh, mm-hmm. you, so it is out in the UK cinemas right now, uh, and it's also streaming on the Disney Plus. That is right, isn't it? It's Disney Plus. Yeah, Disney Plus. Yeah, I, I chose right. to go for Disney Plus because I thought it'd look better on my tiny laptop. Yes. <laughs> and also, when it finished, you could just be like, "Let's quickly watch the Little Mermaid as well, just to see, you know, if that still holds up." <laughs> Why not? <laughs> doesn't <laughs> okay so uh, let's discuss what else we've watched this week sam what have you what have you been watching this week apart from fast and furious it's next week i've just been watching tokyo drift in a big circle like i'm doing a donut or a tokyo drift i think that's what that means um so the film that i'd like to talk about is um, a film called tampopo uh, which is a Japanese film from 1985 that was billed as the first Japanese noodle Western. And it's directed by um, a filmmaker called Yuzo Itami, who, apart from this one film, I had never really heard of before. And annoyingly, it seems like a lot of the, his other films aren't that readily available. So annoyingly, I'm now really wanting to find out more of his films and I can't get them, which is annoying. But... Tampopo is an absolutely great time. So the film tells the stories of two truckers, uh, Gun and Guru. Um, Ken Watanabe, in a very early role, um, plays the part of Gun, and he is really great. Um, so as they're driving along in their truck, they stop at a rundown noodle shop run by the titular Tampopo. Um, so she is a, a widow who has no desire in her life beyond making the best ramen that she can possibly make. Guru. Um, who is a connoisseur of ramen and has some major connections in the business, decides that he and Gunn are going to stop trucking for a while and are going to focus on helping Tampopo turn her ramen shop into the best ramen business in the joint. The film is just an absolute love letter to food. It's one that I'd advise not watching while you're hungry because I watched it immediately after having lunch and I finished absolutely famished. So it's going to make you hungry. So this main story is obviously this Gun and Guro trying to help Tampopo make the perfect ramen. So there's these beautiful scenes where uh, they're going to the other ramen shops and looking at how they're doing it and taking some hints and tips on how to make the broth. Um, The film as well is interspersed with these really great um, vignettes that are all about sort of food and the connection that people have to food. So there's some of them that are really, really funny. There's this one very suave, white-suited gangster who keeps having these very sexualized experiences with food. I'm not going to ruin any of the specific scenes, but there's one that made me laugh and gag at the same time. It's really, really funny. There's also this old woman who terrorizes a shopkeeper by poking all of the food in his pro- in his shop. There's loads and loads of these really fun little things that are all kind of very offhandedly about kind of like Japanese society. But generally speaking, it's just about lo- like life and food. So you get these scenes where it's how love mixes with food and how family mixes with food and how manners and deception and all these things. And they're so beautifully interspersed together it's kind of a really nice light comedy i suppose but all about food and all about japan and i just had the most pleasurable time with it it was really really 
Oh, just and also if you like ramen, it's just really interesting to see how weirdly intense it is to make ramen all the time. My you really made me hungry talking about that. We're recording this just before lunchtime. Jeepers, that is coming. Do you know what? I'm worried the microphone has picked up a tummy <laughs> grumble there because halfway through I was like, there's just one bit where they're drinking the broth out of these bowls. And you know when you could feel your mouth just salivating? You're just like, oh, for Pete's sake, I just had lunch. Why am I hungry? Like, But yeah, um, Tampopa, I got it off of Cinema Paradiso. There's a really nice Criterion edition of it. And I'm not sure if it's available anywhere else, but if you can pick it up or watch it, I'd highly recommend it. It's It was a real nice find. I was really pleased with it. This is leading more and more into um, cooking with Sam on the creaky chair segment. Like That's what I'm building got. up to. The menu's starting <laughs> to fill up now, isn't it? This is this is good. So I've now got two options. I can do Italian. I'll do Mama Scorsese's meatballs. Um, and I can now do Tampopo's ramen. So Fantastic. I just need another, maybe a, a dessert film I'll watch next week. Is there any desserts in Fast and the Furious, Bill? Uh, there might be some custard pies and faces at some point. I'll, uh, I'll have to ch- Let me know <laughs> and I'll, I'll watch that one for next week. Excellent. Well, that does sound really good. I mean, Japanese culture is so interesting and, and unique. And I, I'd love to go to Japan at some point. So I think that feels like a film that would be a must watch before before going. I'd highly recommend it. And there's also, um, just going back to a few a few podcasts ago, when Bill, you talked about the film They Live, there's another, there's an extended fight scene in this between two of the characters that is as kind of enjoyable as the fight scene in They Live. It's just so, oh, I don't want to give too much away, but if you like the fight scene in They Live, Sold. see Tampopo, it's got everything you could want, like the perfect ramen. <laughs> All right, uh, so what I've watched this week, uh, I have rewatched a slightly less pleasant film. I watched Clive Barker's 1987 horror classic, Hellraiser. This is based on Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart. Uh, it was Barker's directorial debut. The plot centres around this mystical puzzle box, which is bought in Morocco by Frank, who is uh, sort of a deviant character. Uh, and then back in a dilapidated house in London, he opens it and is subsequently torn apart. Shortly after, Frank's brother Larry moves into the house with his wife Julia and the and a teenage daughter. And Julia, who had a sordid affair with Frank before her and Larry's wedding, becomes possessed by this by Frank's corpse in the attic, which compels her to lure men back to the house and kill them so that he can he can re- regenerate. And the, this puzzle box releases extra-dimensional monsters known as the Cenobites, led by the iconic Pinhead. Uh, they're a kind of religious sect in, from hell that grant masochistic pleasures to those who call upon them. So as you can gather, if you have not heard or seen Hellraiser, as you can gather from that little plot summary, uh, it's completely wild, it's mad, it's a product of Clive Barker's dark imagination. I think it's, in terms of its placing in horror lineage, I'd, I'd say you know it's credited with providing horror with a, a welcome shot in the arm, shot of energy during the, its late eighties creative slump and the, the kind of endless slasher sequels. Uh, although that said, I mean Hellraiser has subsequently gone on to spawn nine sequels, uh, so it is a full-blooded franchise all on its own now. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I watched this for the first time years ago. I think it was you know about eighteen or so. But I mean, but it's still it's still really effective in terms of its its atmosphere and the rundown old house in North London looks really great. I 
apparently you know, horror fans still sort of make a pilgrimage there to, to go and have their photograph taken outside it's still there i think it's in yeah it's in north london and the you know the special effects and the and the gross out moments are still really really good it's got a real sort of steampunk grainy aesthetic to it and yeah i mean it, it was taking it took the the gore and the and the splatter of traditional horror fair in the 1980s and it, and it did something quite innovative and experimental with it so yeah it's uh it's thoroughly worthwhile it's uh yeah that's hellraiser by clive barker i mean it's available on dvd of course but i watched this on the shudder platform it's it's iconic isn't it um you know the pinhead design um i also think it, it sort of endures because of the deep mythology that goes with it it's uh, it's got such a such a big uh, surrounding story which is fantastic but it's 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 influenced some of my uh, favorite cult films as well dark city and event horizon um and so yeah i think i think it it, it stands up and it is it is a proud proud part of the the horror horror genre i think I watched um, Hellraiser for like the first time last October because I was watching loads of Hall- um, horror films around Halloween, and like I absolutely loved Hellraiser. I didn't realize there was nine sequels. I only watched the first three, um, and Hellraiser two and three really great. I'd highly recommend those two as well. But I haven't seen the other ones. But yeah, the first Hellraiser is just a ah oh, kinky, bloody, gory, beautiful ah. Oh, it's so great. I love I love the first Hellraiser. It seems perfect, guys. I think we've got the next like eight weeks sewn up because there's nine Fast and Furious films, nine Hellraisers. We well, don't need to worry. We don't need to look for new films to yeah. watch. We're just sorted for nine well, weeks. <laughs> we're now going to become the Fast and Furious slash Hellraiser podcast, where it's either a Fast and Furious film or it's one of the Hellraiser sequels. Come and join us. <laughs> Found our niche. Which is the you? more harrowing experience. <laughs> <laughs> what else have you watched this week? Yeah, well, so carrying on um, with the dogs in film theme that we started uh, last week, I decided to watch <laughs> Crimson Tide, 1995 by Tony Scott. Now, listen to this cast list and tell me you're not Jude. Gene Hackman, Denzel Washington, Viggo Mortensen, James Gandolfini, Dog, Submarine. Bit of a sausage fest, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't say what gender the dog was, nor the submarine, so... I apologise. Marine vessels tend to be female, don't they? Yes, they do. Yes, that's that's true. So, yeah, it's it's not too bad. It's not too bad. But um, the the premise is thus: a submarine during um, tensions between Russia and America receives a message to fire its nuclear warheads on Russia. But seconds after that, another message begins to come through, which is cut off due to a radio failure. This pits Gene Hackman's captain, who wishes to fire his order ordered against Denzel Washington's XO, who argues they should wait and repair the radio. Nice. It's an incredible setup, an incredible setup. And it's not one that I expected. I, I put it on just thinking it was going to just be an action film, a Tony Scott action film. But it's it's really not. It's, um, it's an incredibly intense film. And it's about two men with opposing views on war, combat, and just general life, basically, going against each other in the pressure cooker situation of a submarine. it's amazingly tense and very tightly directed, uh, which you'd expect from a, from a Tony Scott film, you know, he's, he's, he's got great, great lineage and and that, but I think it was surprisingly very clever and actually quite an intellectual film. The biggest grandstanding scenes were characters having arguments with each other, characters having discussions and it's got brilliant philosophical discussions about war, um, human nature, politics, race, 
And I really, do, it got me thinking that Tony Scott, I do think is a very underrated director. He's a very entertaining director and he made some wonderful films that still stand up and enjoyed by a lot of people. But I, I do think this film and, and some of his other films, they deal with the effects of testosterone, ego, and and as I said, human nature in combat situations and in basically the standard action thriller genres, but incredibly interesting ways. And it gets you thinking about themes you might not have been thinking about going in and watching an action film, which I think is very commendable. Um, this film, Tarantino polished the script as well. Um, he and There's a few scenes which are quite obviously very Tarantino-influenced, and some of the discussions are as well, which I found very funny. Is there lots of shots of Denzel Washington's feet as he's doing things? Yeah, long, lingering shots of the uh, the dog's paws. Um, <laughs> but And that, that actually adds to it, because I think it could have been a very grim film without those injections of, of very dark humour. And it's dealing with some incredibly weighty subjects in an incredibly overwrought and intense, overblown situation. In the end, and I won't spoil it for you, and I think this is this is testament to um, the writing and direction and, and the performances, you're left questioning which character was in the right. Both have um, good points, basically. And you could you could argue either way, each of them, each of them had a valid reason for doing what they're doing. And I think it's 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 one of those 90s films where you've got great actors in a blockbuster shouting at each other, um, kind of like Few Good Men. And I kind of miss those films. I've not seen them much where you have these genuine A-listers um, really going balls to the wall, screaming at each other. And it, it gets me pumped. But yeah, I uh, I heartily recommend it. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a um, have a few beers and Friday night film because it is very overwrought. Um, but I would say it's it's part of the proud pantheon of excellent submarine films and um, films with dogs in as well. Oh, so uh, it struck a chord with me in terms of remembering something. So I just quickly looked up, and yeah, it does appear to that narrative-wise, it was based on a on a true story that, that that did actually happen during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But of course, being Hollywood, they've transposed it from being uh, Russia to America. So it was actually a Russian uh, Soviet uh, Navy officer called Vasily Arkhipov who, uh, yeah, during the Cuban Missile Crisis was ordered, there was a mistaken order to launch a nuclear strike on America, and he he's credited as being the man who saved the world from nuclear war. So that's very interesting. Very interesting indeed. I remember reading about this. It, it, it's probably a good idea that they did transpose it to the USA, because I don't know if I don't know if Gene Hackman's got a good Russian accent in him. Like, and he's a good actor and everything, but I just don't. I don't imagine that those those powerful scenes of them all yelling at each other would have been as good if they'd all been doing Russian accents. You know, yeah, but he could have just done a Sean Connery and just not done a Russian <laughs> accent, um, and that doesn't lessen Hunt for Red October for me. Well, you know, Wikipedia doesn't tell you whether or not in that Soviet uh, submarine there was a dog, though. I'm assuming not. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely a dog in this film. The dog plays a large part in this film. I'd say the dog's the hero. <laughs> mm-hmm. I might try and watch a dog film for next week. I feel like I'm the only one that's not provided a dog film for the uh, for, our, for our new list we're making. <laughs> How did you? Where did you watch this film? Um, yeah, it was on iPlayer, but it's not anymore. Um, sorry, guys. I actually I actually spotted it on um, ITV4. So just pop on ITV4 at ten o'clock most nights, and it'll pop up at some point. I'm sure. Yeah. Once the once like snooker highlights yeah. finish, it might go on into Crimson Tide. Well, we can hope, I suppose. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there we go. Uh, another broad array of films from from the Creature Panel. Thank you very much indeed for listening. 
next week we are going to be talking about uh, delayed from one week. Uh, sorry about that. If anyone was expecting Army of Dar- Army of the Dead this week, uh, but we will uh, be talking about Zack Snyder's epic new zombie heist film, Army of the Dead, next week. As Sam has already said, we're on social media, and uh, we're very welcome for any and all reviews uh, on uh, whichever platform you get your podcasts. Thank you very much indeed for your uh, continuing support, Bill. Sam, pleasure as always. Uh, we'll see you next week. Pleasure. Bye bye. Absolute pleasure as always, Michael. Have a great week.